Happy New Year. If you are um, visiting with us this morning, a special welcome. Um, maybe it is your New Year's resolution that in 2019 you're going to go to church. You are off to an incredible start. You are one for one. So uh, congratulations on that. Um, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're new and you're wondering what we do at Harvest week after week, it's not that complex. Uh, we worship like we really care about the person we're worshiping, and then we open God's word and try to apply it to our lives. So we're starting a new study on Corinthians. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming up and down the row. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 today. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take this as our gift. But we are jumping into a study of a letter uh, written to the church in Corinth. We're going to be studying this church actually for the next 15 weeks, which is kind of a long study for us. But there's a lot of stuff that I think is going to be really practical in this book. We try to open up God's Word, study from the full counsel of God's Word. We were in the Old Testament last fall, uh, going through a series on prayer. We're back into the New Testament now, and God willing, after Easter, I believe we're going to jump back into the Gospels. But as we jump into 1 Corinthians, and as I began to study this, we planned this series out, kind of laid it out week by week last summer. But as we began to uh, get in and study week by week, one of the things that I realized is many of the guys that I listened to uh, as part of my research have never taught through 1 Corinthians. And I'm like, oh, that strikes me a little bit odd. I've got commentaries and different things. But I'm like, why are some of these pastors never teaching through 1 Corinthians? And then I realized because 1 Corinthians is wicked hard. And there's a lot of things in this book that are controversial to speak on today. There's things like, uh, tell us about uh, spiritual gifts and what it means to speak in tongues and sexual sin and divorce and remarriage and women's roles. And it's like, oh my goodness, if I can get through this study of this church without blowing up our church, I'm going to be doing really, really well. But um, in the process of studying 1 Corinthians, and as we study this church, we're not studying the church. There's books like 1 Timothy or Titus that you could go to and you would study about elders and deacons and the structure of a church and what's a church supposed to be. That's not this study. Paul is writing a letter and it's a hard letter. It's actually a corrective letter to a church that is struggling to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and live really in a, in a contrast to the culture that they find themselves in. And because that's what this book is about. Paul taking the time and speaking truth to a church that is trying to live very, very differently than its culture. I think it has a lot of things that are relevant to where we find ourselves today. So I'm going to jump right in. And I'm going to pick it up in chapter 1. Hey, how about we start in verse 1? Would that be a good idea? We'll start there. So if you're ready, say go. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to our brother uh, and, and our brother Sothenes. It's interesting, you can read about uh, the establishment of the Corinthian church in Acts uh, chapter 18. Paul established this church on his second missionary journey, and this guy Sothenes was actually, I believe, it's the same name in Acts 18, of a guy that was basically the head of the temple. So as he came in there, one of the Jewish leaders in the temple actually converted, he refers to him as our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, whenever I start a book study, I feel obligated to give you enough background so that you understand what's going on, but I hate giving background because it's boring to me. 
So we're gonna go through this as quick as I can. Hopefully I won't lose you. But there's a couple important things that you need to know. Paul is the author. He's writing to a church that's in Corinth and it is written, uh, best historians can tell, somewhere between 54 and 56 AD. So if it's written between 54 and 56, can we say that it was written in 55? You guys comfortable with that? Okay, so 55 AD. What's significant about that is Jesus Christ had his earthly ministry up until somewhere around 30 to 33 AD. So this church was established just over 20 years after Jesus had his earthly ministry. And as we get into the book, what you're going to find is there's some people in the church that have been saved through the ministry of Paul. There's some that have been saved through the ministry of Peter, some that have been saved through the ministry of um, a guy by the name of Apollos, who's going to be the pastor at this church after Paul leaves. But there's a whole nother group of people in this church that were actually followers and disciples of Jesus during his earthly ministry. So if I were going to get up and tell you a story of Jesus in the Corinthian church, the person would be like, yeah, I was there. So it's that closely connected to the earthly ministry of Jesus. I think that's significant. And then a couple things about the city of Corinth, because it was a fairly spectacular city uh, in 55 AD. Um, put up the next picture. So this is a picture of Greece, and there is kind of the main part of Greece, and then there is this island to the bottom of Greece, and these two land masses are connected by this thin piece of land, only four miles wide, and at its narrowest point in the first century, um, in 55 AD, sat the city of Corinth. And now what made that significant is you had these two seas. You had the Aegean Sea to the east. You had, I believe, the Mediterranean Sea to the left. And as sailors brought their goods from Asia and moved them into Europe, they had to make a decision. Do we want to sail ar around the lower tip of Greece, which was a very treacherous sea, it was a treacherous journey, or would it be better for us to go to Corinth, offload our goods, move them over the four miles of land, and then send them on the rest of their journey up into upper Europe. And it was more economical, it was faster, and it was safer for them either to transport their goods across this narrow four-mile piece of land, or to actually, they had a rail system back in the first century where they would actually move the entire ship across the four miles. Today there's a canal, that seems to make more sense, but back then it was rails. So what happened was this city of Corinth, it's estimated that it had 250,000 citizens and for every citizen there was two slaves. And the slaves kept this shipping industry and this transport industry moving. It took a lot of manpower, but the people were incredibly affluent. There was this combination of this clash of different cultures coming from the east and from the west. So it was diverse, they were affluent, there were a lot of different uh, religions in this city. It says that there were 12 temples back in that day. Archie guys that dig have proven. <laughs> and um, so a lot going on, but a lot of wealth. And the thing that you need to know is the main temple in Corinth was to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. And there was this weird thing going on in the culture where there were a thousand prostitutes that lived in the temple and there was this combination of sexual immorality and religion that had the people pretty confused. So when you think of big city, think of Vegas, okay? It's more like that than probably anything else that I can think of. And in the midst of this environment, you have this brand new church, 
just decades after Jesus Christ was on earth, trying to figure out what it means to be a church and coming out of this culture, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's addressing. Now, I'm going to take your attention. I'm going to bounce all the way down to verse 18. I'm going to grab Paul's greeting, verses 4 through 9, at the end of the message. Verses 10 through 17, he's addressing the first problem in the church, which is disunity. But that subject is covered in great detail in chapter 3. So we're going to save that for chapter 3. We're going to devote our attention for our time this morning, starting in verse 18. And it says this in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So there is a discussion that Paul begins his letter with where he is contrasting worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. Note, He's not saying knowledge. Knowledge is what we know. Wisdom is knowledge applied to how we live. So there are two worldviews. There are two ways of thinking. There are two things that people believe. And those beliefs now effectuate the way they behave. And he is contrasting godly wisdom with worldly wisdom. And I want to explore that. For a few minutes. I'm going to put a chart up on the screen. You have it in your notes comparing worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. The first point under worldly wisdom is this. I am my own authority. Back in, um, back before most of y'all were born, back in April of 1966, one of the uh, most influential magazines, um, a magazine is, it, it's in like you buy them. There's, it's like a book, but shorter. You guys remember, right? So, so one of the more influential magazines back in the 60s was Time Magazine. And Time Magazine ran a cover in April of 1966. It was the first time they'd ever ran a cover without a picture on it. It just had three words. And it's become an iconic cover today. And it asked this question, is God dead? And just don't mean to review U.S. history too much for you, but you got to remember where we were in the 60s. As we came into the turn of the century, the car had been invented, transportation was exploding, but in the 19-teens, we found ourselves in World War I. And World War I was, at that time, probably the largest war the world had ever known. Huge devastation, incredible loss of life, particularly to European nations. And coming out of uh, the end of World War I, it was like the whole world said, never again are we going to do that. And in our country then, coming out of that time of World War I, we went right into the Roaring Twenties, which was followed by the Depressive Thirties. And then we found ourselves in the 1940s, sucked back into an even greater war than World War I, World War II. The main difference between World War I and World War II was the technology advancements in how you conducted warfare. 
there was this thing invented called a nuclear bomb. In World War II, in the 40s, again, huge devastation. Once peace was reached in the late 40s, we entered this kind of golden decade, which was the 50s, where our economy was buzzing, our country held to kind of conservative values during those days. Everybody had their front lawn and their porches and their picket fences, and it all looked so ideal. But as we left the 50s and went into the 60s, our culture was getting rocked. First of all, we'd had a president assassinated. First, then we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we were getting dragged back into another war being Vietnam, and our country was split over that issue. Introduce into this system um, uh, drug abuse. Our, our country entered a decade of rebellion. And we can point to all of those outside reasons. The threat of war, you know, kids doing uh, drills. Hey, in case of nuclear attack, make sure you're under your desk. Okay, that'll solve that, right? But, but, but living in fear and, and all of this, and, and I believe there was something also underrooting this is for everything that you could say nice about the 50s, if you put your hope in family, if you put your hope in job, if you put your home in your home and all of that, the next generation was coming out of that scene that their, their parents were not satisfied with physical possessions and they'd said enough. And in the middle of the 60s, there was this generation and time picked up on it. They said, is God dead? We were throwing off authority. And worldly wisdom tends to deny that we are under an authority. It's interesting, this is nothing new. In Isaiah 47, verse 10, the prophet writes, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. See, when we throw off authority and we say we're our own authority, that usually doesn't lead anywhere good. Verse 11, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. When we deny God, when we deny the existence of God, when we push that to the side, here's some good news. It helps alleviate the guilt and shame of our rebellion. Here's the bad news. When you don't live under authority, um, it affects the way that you live. Let me, let me try to give this by example. Think back to when you were in high school, maybe in college. Do you remember taking those classes that you're like, why am I in this class? I'm never going to use this stuff. Do you guys remember those? Why did you pay attention in those classes? Like, why did you take notes? Why did you show up every day? Why did you study for stuff that you didn't like and you didn't think you'd ever use? Why did you do it? What happened at the end of that semester? There was a test. And then that test led to a grade, and then that grade led to a report card, and that report card went to your parents. Do you remember? So authority made you do what you might not want to do. If you had arrived at that same class in the first day, your teacher had handed out the syllabus and said, hey, just so you guys are aware, I'm not keeping track of grades. You're all going to earn the same thing. It doesn't matter. How would you have shown up? No. Be honest. So authority was thrown off. The world's wisdom says, I'm going to live by my own authority. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we understand that we're accountable. Hebrews 9 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, 
Now please hear me, that judgment is not whether or not you measure up to God's standard. Spoiler alert, you don't. None of us do. The, the judgment that you have after you die is all about what you did with Jesus Christ. God's provision to deal with our failure. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus being sent to solve the problem in our place of our sin. And when you are not living according to worldly wisdom, but you're living according to godly wisdom, it's more than just knowledge of Jesus. Your knowledge of Jesus impacts the way that you live and you understand that you are accountable. Here's the second thing in worldly wisdom. If I believe that I'm not accountable, it logically leads that I will do what I feel. I will do what I feel. When someone embraces the idea that they're their own authority, it empowers them to live by their feelings. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when we failed to acknowledge God, it says we became foolish, and one, Romans 1 goes on to say, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. That lust of their hearts, they're going to do what they feel like doing. I'm going to do what makes me feel good. Honesty in church, just for a minute. If you were to look back over 2018, and you were going to look at some of the major decisions or the major moments during that year, and when you came to forks in the road where you had to make a choice, how did you make that choice? Was it based off your feelings, or was it based off a choice of the will? See, in contrast to living by our feelings... If we believe that we are accountable, then we are called to make decisions based off our will and to live according to our will, not our feelings. Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25. Same thing said in two different verses. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. See, when we live according only to our feelings, we will do what feels right. That doesn't mean that we're choosing righteously. Our feelings need to be informed by the word of God and the word of God needs to govern our activity and sometimes that means we don't do what we feel like doing. Um, feelings are strong. Naturally, we follow our feelings in deciding what we do. But the gospel calls us and godly wisdom calls us to something different. In three different places, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three gospels, it's recorded that Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's the exact opposite of living by your feelings. That's a choice of the will. And take up his cross and follow me. As followers of Jesus, we don't live by our feelings. We live by our will. Maybe a, a good way to illustrate that is think of, think of love for a minute. And maybe there's some younger couples or, or that are dating or they're engaged or they're newly married. And if I came to you and said, um, why do you love your spouse? You might get answers like, because they always make me laugh. They make me feel better about who I am. They love me no matter what. They complete me, whatever that means. <laughs> you know, you'll get all of these answers and if you listen to somebody explain why they are in love, we ask premaritals this a lot of times, this is the stuff we get back. And we're like, don't confuse infatuation with love. Infatuation is a feeling 
Love is a choice of the will. Now, if I were to take some in the room that have been married for a longer season and say, why do you love your spouse? Listen, I hope all those feelings of infatuation are still there and they've actually grown over time. But if that's true, somewhere along that journey, that relationship, they made a choice of the will to love. Trust me, Kristen's not in this service, but if she were in this service and you asked her, why do you love David? It's not just about the way that she feels about me, though obviously I'm quite easy to love. <laughs> there are times in our 35 years where she has chosen to love me in spite of the way that she feels. And I would argue that choice of the will has allowed us to experience a love that has grown deeper, better, stronger, and richer than if it were just based off feelings. See, we don't want to be people that live just by our feelings. We want to make choices of the will. This is always the battle in discipleship. You're talking to someone and they're saying, I know God's word tells me I have to forgive, but I was really wounded and my feelings were hurt and I can't forgive because I don't feel like I can. Or you talk to someone else and you say, I know that the Bible warns us about dating unbelievers and marrying somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, but you got to understand, I'm lonely and I don't like it. And I met this guy online and he makes me feel good. And now I'm caught in this, am I going to live by what God's word says or am I going to live according to how I feel? See, that's always the tension between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. You need to take your feelings and compare them to the word of God. If what you feel is right is what God's word says is right, then you can move confidently ahead in that course of activity. But when your feelings don't align with what God's word says, you have to step back and make a choice. Am I going to do what I feel or am I going to live according to godly wisdom? Here's another one. Under worldly wisdom, I am my own authority, I do what I feel. If those things are true, if you're your own authority and you're going to do what you feel, understand that your focus becomes now. Like, I'm not accountable, I'm going to do what I feel, I'm going to do what I feel right now. We are a culture that is intoxicated by immediacy. One of the cool things uh, that I've got to experience was in Going back and forth to Kenya, our church has planted two churches in Kenya. One of them is near Nairobi on the eastern side or middle part of the country. And the pastor there is James Onwamba. James has studied over in the United States. He's nowhere near as fun because he gets our culture. But our other pastor is over from the Ugandan-Kenyan border on the west side of the country. And there's no paved roads. It's all dirt. It's more village than city. And we brought that guy over to the United States. He'd never left Kenya before. And when he landed in Grand Rapids, I made a point to take him right from the airport. Hey, are you hungry? And I took him to a McDonald's drive-thru. <laughs> Just for the experience. So we pull up to the window and I say, I want a number one with a Diet Coke. You don't get a body like this drinking regular, obviously. <laughs> and and I, I want a number one with a, with a Diet Coke. And I say, what do you want? Well, so now he's all flustered. And I'm like, do you want beef or chicken? Cow or chicken? He goes, I'll take chicken. So I pick whatever number the chicken is. And uh, we pull up a little bit. We hand our money through the window. They hand us back our change. We go to the next window. There's a bag and our food's there. And he's like, 
when did they have time to kill the chicken? Like that's the first question <laughs> that, that, that we get asked. And, and you just need to understand when you don't live under authority and you're going to do whatever you feel, we want it now, right? Like, we want answers now. Like, if you type in a, a page on your web browser and it doesn't show up in two seconds, you're annoyed. We're addicted to the right now, but it's the path of worldly wisdom. The same would have been true in the Corinthian culture. Because of the affluency based off their age or the time that they lived and the fact that there were two slaves for every person, they weren't drawing their own water. And if the slave was wait, I'm sure they, late, I'm sure they were annoyed. See, because this worldly wisdom, we need to be satisfied and we need to be satisfied right now. As a follower of Jesus Christ, godly wisdom tells us that we live with eternity in view. Do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, it says in Matthew 6 where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jim Elliott, a missionary that was martyred in Ecuador, wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I do not, as a follower of Jesus Christ, with godly wisdom, I do not place my hope in temporal things. I've always got an eye towards eternity. If I'm accountable, and if I'm going to live by my will, I'm always looking for that future accountability. And then here's the fourth thing. If I'm my own authority, if I do what I feel and my focus is now, I am forced to accept all opinions as true or equal. If there's no authority, and I'm going to live by my own feelings, that means I have to give everyone else the right to live the same way that I am. On April 3rd, 2017, 51 years after it ran that cover, Time Magazine, Is God Dead? They ran a new cover based off that cover. And last year in April, instead of asking the question, is God dead? They asked this question, is truth dead? See, if you remove authority, if you're going to live by how you feel, and if it's an immediate perspective, eventually truth dies as well. And you can no longer say, well, I feel this way, therefore, and then look at someone else and they say, well, I feel this way, therefore, and condemn what they did. Why is your truth better? That seems arrogant. Oprah Winfrey, speaking at the Golden Globe Awards last year, has she received the uh, prestigious Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award. She got up and gave a speech. Some of you will remember that. One of the things that she said in the speech is she said this, what I know for sure is that speaking your own truth is the most powerful tool we have. Listen, if everyone's truth is valid, then by definition we have to become inclusive and tolerant of each person's perception on what is real to them, what is truth to them. Who are we to say? as followers of Jesus Christ, who gets to define marriage? Who are we to say who gets to define gender? How arrogant to say that your truth is untrue. And where this worldly wisdom and godly wisdom really crash is at the basic point of the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ was sent into this world to save sinners, and it was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that is the remedy to our sin problem. But as a follower of Jesus Christ in a culture that has dismissed absolute truth, how arrogant of us to say 
that Jesus is the only way. And since you can't speak of definitive truth in our culture because you will be labeled as exclusive, you will be labeled as unloving, you will be labeled whatever, we are left to never confront, we can only cheerlead. Friendships today are measured on people talking to other people and they say, hey, I think I'm looking to go do this. And if that's destructive, the friend has to make a choice. And typically in our culture, it's like, well, whatever makes you feel good, I'm just going to love you no matter what. I want to be supportive of you no matter what stupid thing you choose to do. That's not friendship. That's cowardice. And sometimes as a friend, you've got to say, warning, the choices that you're making are going to lead you and your life in a course and a direction It's going to lead to pain. It's going to be harmful. But those discussions become rarer and rarer in a culture that has embraced worldly wisdom. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we understand that salvation is in Christ alone, and we understand there is an absolute truth. Again, this is nothing new. John 18, Jesus is on trial. He's standing before Pilate. And it says in verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, to Jesus, So you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Now hear this. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Why did Jesus, why did we just celebrate Christmas? Why was he born? He just, he's answering it. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In essence, what Jesus just said, God is truth. He is the source of truth. And Jesus' whole point in coming was to reveal truth to the world. What does Pilate say in response? What is truth? There it is. It's the clash between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. If I were to take you through the rest of this text, verse by verse, what you would see, because of this tension, this different and clashing worldviews between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, the person who follows godly wisdom will look at the follower of Jesus Christ, and you need to understand this, you're going to be an offense. Verse 23 says that the gospel is a stumbling block or an offense to the world. In verse 27, we're called weak. Also in verse 27, we're called foolish. In verse 28, it says that we're going to be despised, to be thought lowly of. Which begs this question. If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ and we're going to submit ourselves to godly wisdom... Why in the world would we do that if it's going to create conflict with the world? And here's our big idea. Very profound. We worked on it all week. Here's the big idea. It's worth it. It's worth it. Listen to what Paul says. The reason we file godly wisdom is because godly wisdom is true. Our hope is in what is true. Listen to what it says in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Those are the two sub-points under we recognize how God works. He chose the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. It's right from the text. What is Paul saying? There is a way that God operates. 
And God loves to take what is ordinary and turn it into something that is extraordinary. That's our God. And God's not looking for people that are extraordinarily gifted, extraordinarily good communicators. He's looking for normal people to shed his grace on and then to use them to propel the gospel. I don't know if it was in 2018 or 2017, but we've got this guy in our culture. Throw up the next screen. Tell me if you guys recognize it. Call it out quick. Who is he? Okay, Justin Bieber. Okay, can't say I'm a huge Justin Bieber fan myself. I think I'm a little old for his music. I think that would be weird. Um, go back to that. Keep him up there. But he's made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You guys aware of that? And um, got to think about what he's come out of. I mean, this guy's worshipped. Where this guy goes, he is worshipped. But I would contend that his story is not very different from our story. When it says, consider your calling. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, though the specifics of our story would be different, there's common themes that would run behind all of our conversion experience. And it looks like this. We were following at one point worldly wisdom. We were living according to our feelings. We were living according to ourselves. And at some point we realized that that wasn't solving the internal longing in our soul. We were still lacking. There was something missing. Uh, we were living with guilt and shame that we didn't know how to deal with. And we came to a point where we said there's got to be something better. And by God's grace, we were introduced to the gospel and this idea that there is a God who unconditionally loves you and he sent his son to prove it and that if we repent of our sins and place our trust in him, that we can actually know what it means to be forgiven. That's true in every one of our stories. I don't know Justin Bieber. I hope his conversion testimony is true. Truth and time will walk hand in hand on that. And if it is true, we've got to celebrate that because it's another person that said everything in the world and said, I desperately need something more because the world can never satisfy. What an incredible story that would be, right? But I promise you that God is not up at heaven going, now that we got Justin Bieber, <laughs> this gospel thing's going to take off. Like, like he's not saying that is the turning point. And that's a really important thing for us to understand in Western Michigan, sitting in this church. Because can we just confess we're not all that famous? Like, I, I don't think we have a lot of famous people here. Maybe I'm missing something. If you're famous, please come up and introduce. I don't want to offend, but just come introduce yourself to me after the service. Um, over um, the holidays, there's a young couple that grew up in our church. They were in our high school ministry, really, from the start of the church. Dylan Groover and um, uh, Libby Miller. And they grew up in our youth group. They started dating. They went to Moody Bible Institute. They got married. And now they're serving out at a church in Denver. And, and like, the, if you want to get, get your pastors fired up, we love those kind of stories. And they were home for the holidays. And he was describing his church out in Denver. And they're at a church called Brave Church in Denver. And the funny thing about the, that church is they launched the same day we did. And we've got a lot of friends out there on staff. But as Dylan was telling us the story, he's like, 
yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was at church the other day, and Peyton Manning was there. I said hello to him. And then when he's when they're not in season, the current quarterback of the Denver Broncos uh, attends. And I'm really good friends with one of the linemen of the... And he starts just rattling off celebrity after celebrity that attends this church. And I'm like... We don't have any celebrities like, like that. I, that would be cool. Like, we don't have Peyton Manning. Like, how cool would that be? I'd take Matthew Stafford. I wouldn't be excited, but I'd take him. <laughs> you know, something. Actually, as I was thinking about it, um, we do have a celebrity here. Most of you guys aren't aware of it. Put up the next slide. Note, the jersey in that picture is, a, is an all-star jersey. We have a man who attends our church that played in the National Hockey League, had a long career. He's in the Hall of Fame. He uh, won the Stanley Cup. He won Goalie of the Year. He represented America in international competitions. If I understand correctly, he has the most wins in NHL history for a U.S.-born goalie. I mean, that, that's a pretty impressive resume. But see, most of you didn't know that he attends here. And I'm going to give you a little secret. If you ever want to meet this guy... He usually attends North Campus when he's in town, and when he's here, he's usually serving with his wife in the cafe ministry. And what impresses me about this guy, and I've gotten to know him through the four or five years that they've been here, what impresses me about this guy, I've never felt that he's impressed with his own celebrity. I've never even gotten that sense about the guy. And see, what God is using is people who are not impressed with celebrity or their own celebrity, which is why this section of scripture closes like this. Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the way God operates. And then let me give you another reason why it's worth it. I skipped this early, but I think it's important. Go back up to verse 3. Now, Corinth is a new church, a church that's struggling to live a life separated from the world. Paul has to give a lot of instruction, a lot of correction to this new church. But I want you to listen to the way that he addresses the church at the start of the letter. I think it's significance. Actually, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's taken their salvation and he said, just like you've been saved is the same way that we were saved. We have this common experience. And then he says, which is Paul's most common greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts with grace. And then in verse four, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that, that was given you. Past tense. They were given grace when they acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior. And so they're not walking perfectly, so they're continuing to struggle. Paul recognizes at the beginning of his letter, you guys are recipients of grace just like us. And I'm so thankful because that makes all the difference. He says, I give thanks always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Jesus Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that he starts his greeting with the word twice, grace, and then he ends it guiltless. And I think that's significant. 
because grace and guilt do not coexist. They don't occupy the same space. The whole point of grace is that we've screwed up. If there hasn't been sin, there's no need for grace. But because the grace of God has been poured out on them, they can now stand guiltless. It's not because they are guiltless, but they've been forgiven by the authority who has done away with their guilt. See, here's the problem with worldly wisdom, and here's where it falls short. All of us understand that we don't measure up. And you can throw the authority out. You can deny the existence of God to get rid of that guilt. But what do you do with the guilt of just falling short of your own expectations of yourself? How do you deal with that? The gospel of God begins, or the wisdom of God begins with grace being given to us by God, not based off our merit. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. There's nothing about us to celebrate, but there's a God who chose to set his grace on us because he loves us, and that's worthy of being celebrated. And that grace doesn't just handle our guilt and shame before an authority. It handles the guilt and shame of us knowing that we fall short because we're going to continue to fall short. The Corinthian church continues to fall short, but because of God's grace and unconditional love, we can always return to him, confess our sin, and know that we won't be thrown to the wind. See, that's the beauty of grace. And before Paul ever gets into the issues of what's wrong with the church, he gives them the hope that they are recipients of grace. And in spite of the correction that's coming, you got to understand, you are identified and you are valued by a God who sees you through the lens of grace because of what Jesus Christ did. Worldly wisdom never cures you of your guilt and shame. The grace of God leaves you, guilt, leaves you guiltless and now you can anticipate with hope standing before the authority one day rather than dreading future judgment. Let me close with this. It's New Year's. Think New Year's resolutions. Anybody here make any New Year's resolutions? How you doing? We're day six, right? What was that New Year's resolution? Oh, I want to lose a couple pounds. Me too. Get in line. Okay, everybody comes up with that one. Here's my concern. And when we talk through a series of gospel church, here's what we're going to be driving at. Ask yourself the question, are you living according to your feelings or are you living because of choice of the will? Are you rebelling against authority or are you happily living under authority because you understand the grace and the love that authority has for you? Do you just do what you feel in the moment? Is that what this determines your actions or do you live with eternity in sight and do you value God's word as a truth that never changes that you can go to it is true north and it can be used to guide your life because my fear would be that there would be some in this room or all of us from time to time in this room who though we claim the name of Jesus Christ, we are seduced by the worldly wisdom and we claim Christ, but we live according to worldly wisdom. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he saved me, but I'm going to do what I want to do. That is not only illogical, it's not even wisdom. It steals the joy out of being a follower of Jesus Christ. 
So maybe even as we start this series, I'm so grateful to Paul that he starts in chapter one. Let's set the choice right before you. What are you going to choose? Worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? And when you choose godly wisdom, it's not going to be easy. The world's not going to applaud you. You're probably not going to be a celebrity. But you want to know some great news? You've been forgiven by God. What a great thing. Let that, that be the thing we strive for, our resolution, as we go into 2019. Let's pray. Father, we... Um, I would pray your uh, blessing over this season in our church. I would pray that, um, that our eyes would be opened to what drives our activity. Father, let our identity be in you. Father, let your view of us frame our view of us. May we see ourselves as loved. May we see ourselves as forgiven. Father, I pray for those in this room who, though they've acknowledged you as Savior, they still struggle with guilt and shame and regrets. Father, I pray that, that you would be merciful, that you would allow them to see that your work on the cross covers that guilt and shame. Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have to follow you. And it's not easy, and though we stumble, you are a God who loves us. What a great thing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.